Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. The first thing I want to talk about is something that's uh, become an issue uh, over the recent weeks because of the uh, death of a uh, Palestinian uh, newswoman. And they made a big deal about Israel's rules of engagement. And I want to uh, say a few things about that because I think it's a subject you don't hear much about, but it's a subject that our army worries very much about. The recent calls by American officials for Israel to re-examine our army's rules of engagement after the, as I said, the unfortunate death of a journalist, a woman named Shirin Abu Akhlev, and these calls by the American officials are arguably an extremely dangerous precedent in the relations between Israel and the United States. Now, this woman's death is not a rare event. Um, uh, newsmen often, I, shouldn't, I don't know if often is the right words to, word to use, but it happens that news people are killed in uh, fighting because they're in the line of fire. That's what their job is, to go and report events, including combat events. The condition of Israel's army fighting against Palestinian terrorist organizations are extremely complex and often take place inside residential neighborhoods where the terrorists are hiding. Unfortunately, such a reality sometimes also claims victims who are not involved in the fighting. It's been assessed by various international experts that around 90%, 90% of the victims of modern wars are civilians. I don't know who these uh, international experts are, but I saw this statistic. 90% of the victims of modern wars are civilians. According to military experts who have battleground experience, the Israeli army, the Israeli Defense Force, called the IDF, does more to safeguard the rights of civilians in a combat zone than any other army in the history of warfare. While the Israeli army took the brave step of admitting that it is highly likely that the bullet, the bullet that killed this Palestinian um, reporter came for one of its soldiers. It was a tragic accident. One clear proof of this is the chief of staff of the army made a statement that the army operate, operates in the most complex environment every day in Judea and Samaria and demonstrates a very high level of professional performance and values while trying to avoid harm to those who are not involved. The Israeli army invests great efforts in this, in, in this, and in doing so, works to enable freedom of the press. 
Now, with that said, we need to show that this woman reporter's death should be seen in the context of the operation. The IDF, the Israeli army, was in Jenin, a city that was given over to the uh, um, Palestinian Authority. It's an Arab city. And uh, the army was there to root out terrorists after a wave of murders that cost the lives of uh, about 20 people. These, had take, these murders had taken place in Israel in the days preceding the raid on Jenin, including an independence day when two Palestinian terrorists hacked three innocent Israeli civilians to death in the town of Elad, here in Israel. So the army was on high alert. Now, these and many of the other perpetrators have come from Jenin, or the surrounding area of Jenin. It's a hotbed of terrorism. If you look at the map, it's just about in the center of the, uh, of the region between Jordan River and uh, the Mediterranean Ocean. And this is exactly the reason why the Israeli army target is to thwart these terrorists as far as it is possible from coming into Israeli civilian centers. By achieving that, Israel now is winning tactically and operationally. If the fatal bullet that ended this person's life came from an IDF soldier, then it was in this context, all of which removed from global finger pointing at Israel. Now, nevertheless, keep in mind the United States itself engaged in multiple recent conflicts over the last couple of decades involving asymmetrical warfare. Because the United States has been engaged in conflicts around the world, they should know better than to cast aspersion on Israel's rules of engagement. Also, the Israeli army already took such care not to target civilians that it takes such care that it risks its own soldiers' lives and it risks its operational activities. Of all the armies in the world, Israel is the most careful in avoiding civilian casualties and this affects the way the soldiers react and it endangers the soldiers in many cases. And Israel's enemies know this quite well, and that's why they have used this incident with this uh, Palestinian reporter to put up the pressure on the army. They seek a severely handicapped military force. They're trying to get the Israeli army to be super careful and that the terrorists can further inflict damage if the Israeli army is overly careful. The, um, the, it's interesting, the goal of these uh, organizations, these terrorist organizations, is not to take over the state of Israel. And they, they know that they, they can't do that. They simply want to kill Jews. And our job is to prevent them. They already manipulate sympathetic non-governmental organizations, NGOs, 
and the hand-wringing of an international media, which frequently keeps an unprecedented daily score of deaths, aimed to delegitimize Israel's security concerns. Israel is in a very difficult position vis-a-vis -vis world opinion. These are the facts on the ground. Now, there is no doubt that every death is a tragedy, and it's true. It doesn't lead to where Israel's enemies and opponents wish often to take it. That every innocent civilian death means the conflict or operation is unjust or illegitimate. That is what our enemies are trying to say. If this were to be so, the West, the world in the West, led by the United States, battling radical terrorist organizations, should just close shop and hand the keys of civilization and freedom and democracy to the extremists. There are extremists, they must be fought. Israel can and should not change its rules of engagement unless towards taking greater measures and ensuring security for its citizens, perhaps by other tools, by calling for a re-examination of Israel's rules of engagement, the Jewish state's enemies become emboldened, furthering their dream of ultimate victory and ensuring many more will die on both sides in this conflict in the future. Now, the bottom line is that the United States should stop these demands against Israel. I would even suggest that these are unjust and absurd demands, and the United States should be instead giving Israel unequivocal backing to end the conflict once and for all by giving it all necessary assistance to achieve some kind of total victory. This at the moment is an endless conflict. The goal should always be to end the conflict because by ending the conflict, the bloodshed will cease. And if that would happen, it would be a victory for both Israelis and Palestinians. The current geopolitical reality within the Palestinian system makes this very difficult, if not impossible, to renew negotiations toward any diplomatic solution. A diplomatic solution to Israeli-Palestinian society of argument, conflict, is simply not in the offing. Until then, Israel has every right to defend itself using all available tools and expect its friends, especially the United States, to be supportive of these efforts. This will not just be a tactical win, but it will be a diplomatic win for the Israelis. We live in a situation unlike most countries live, particularly countries in the West. We live with an area right next to Israel proper, and the area that was given over to the Palestinian Authority, and part of which the Gaza area was taken over by extreme terrorists. And by the way, the Palestinian Authority is also a terrorist organization. Israel lives in a situation 
where most of its borders all around the country are, protect us from uh, terrorism, which is right on our doorstep. And it's right, Israel does its best to limit the number of casualties who are not uh, part of the military force against Israel. But these things happen, and this has to be taken into account. If Israeli soldiers, for example, would start firing uh, just any time they run into terrorists without taking due care that innocent people are not involved, there'd be a much higher number of innocent people killed on the Palestinian side. The fact that the number is actually so low speaks well of the Israeli engagement, and uh, we don't have to have anybody else telling us to be more careful. We know we have to be careful, and we do all we can to indeed be careful. So the fact that the world rises up against us by American officials asking Israel to re-examine its rules of engagement, that takes a lot of nerve. Very few countries live under the situation that we do, and that has to be taken into account. The next subject that I want to talk about is completely different, but it's something that uh, really is really haunting us now. Uh, the country is now filling up with more skyscrapers. If you look at Tel Aviv today, the skyline of Tel Aviv is totally different than it was just a few years ago. I don't get into Tel Aviv very often, but when I do, I'm astounded by the number of new buildings that are coming up, skyscrapers. When I came to live in Israel slightly more than 50 years ago, there was only one so-called skyscraper. It didn't do much skyscraping. It was called Migdal Shalom, and it really stood out above the uh, skyline of Tel Aviv. As a matter of fact, you could best describe the skyline of Tel Aviv as not being a skyline. It do, it, none of the buildings did, did much jutting into the sky. Anyhow, the reason I bring it up is uh, a massive sinkhole suddenly opened up last week in the middle of Tel Aviv's Ayalon Highway. And Ayalon Highway is one of the main thoroughfares in Tel Aviv. It's a sobering reminder of the need for greater safety precaution. Although it's not yet completely clear what caused the sinkhole to appear, it's considered likely to be related to all this major construction work going on in the area in which excavation work has diverted subterranean water flow. The, the, the sinkhole, if you know uh, Tel Aviv at all, it appeared uh, next to the Hashalom interchange in the southbound direction. And it's a really busy area. The sinkhole occurred on uh, Saturday when there's much, much less traffic, but still dangerous. Police had to seal off many of the lanes, and the train service to Tel Aviv were, was closed. As a matter of fact, last year, part of a parking lot here in Jerusalem in the Shari Tzedek Hospital collapsed due to a sinkhole, and three cars fell into it. Luckily, in that case, no one was injured. The vehicles were empty at the time. Uh, it did happen uh, about uh, in July, 
and when a uh, a fellow was killed and he lost his life when a sinkhole opened up under a swimming pool at a private party. So, um, so the ongoing investigation in, in that case indicates that a proper survey of the area would have revealed the problematic caverns and tunnels that contribute to the development of sinkholes. It also shows that correct maintenance may have prevented the tragedy. Now, many tragedies are not an act of nature like a fatal lightning strike, but they're the results of negligence. Uh, in recent years, many sinkholes have opened up in the Dead Sea region and because the water level is receding. And right along the Dead Sea is Israel's Route 90, which is its longest highway. It goes, it goes from Eilat, the furthest point in the south, all the way up to Kiryat Shmona, which is the most northern port of Israel. It's a very long highway. And it's sad to think the country only true, truly pays attention to the sinkhole phenomenon when it affects traffic in Tel Aviv. See, a sinkhole anywhere is deadly. So uh, we, we also have news of construction workers falling to their deaths at sites where the required safety measures have not been implemented. It has become quite commonplace almost on a weekly basis a lot of these uh, uh, construction workers are from other countries, and uh, they do very dangerous things. And this is bad, because there is a precept in Judaism that anyone who saves a life is considered as having, having saved the entire world. The obvious concept behind this is the belief that every single life counts, and every single life is a world in itself. So the sinkhole, the sinkhole on the Iolone busy highway should serve as a wake-up call in general and another reminder that safety is as important as security. Warning signs of a problem should be heeded, but even before that, Utmost care must be taken with planning and implementation of projects, large and small. The government must ensure that existing regulations are enforced, and investment should be made in more safety inspectors, and follow-up with legal procedures should be conducted. Safety is an essential component of the covenant between a government and its citizens. That's how it has to be looked at. It's not, it does not depend on who heads the government or which party holds the construction, transportation, or infrastructure portfolios. Safety is a responsibility of the government. And in a sense, in a real sense, it is a religious responsibility. You know, it did, by the way, in the Dead Sea, the Route 90 has signs along the way, beware of sinkholes. Putting up a sign is not a solution. The, the, uh, nobody can seriously consider the erecting danger signs on the main Tel Aviv highway will solve the problem, or more importantly, it won't absolve anyone of responsibility. Some disasters are waiting to happen. It's immoral to ignore the warning signs and just hope they won't happen 
when you're responsible, when you're a government official responsible, for example, for the highways, the the this sinkhole on a major highway in Tel Aviv symbolizes the problem. It's the visible end result of a process that started before the danger became evident to all. So what is happening under the surface needs to be monitored. I want to say a few words about something that was unimaginable 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. I'm talking about the what's known as the Abraham Accords. This is the... Um, the relations between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. They're called the Abraham Accords because Abraham is the father of both the Jewish nation and essentially the Arab nation. A series of recent high-level meetings and events illustrated how the Abraham Accords are working out. They were signed two years ago. It turns out their importance reaches far beyond the countries to Israel's tie to India also, as well as with Morocco, Bahrain, and other countries. Our president, Isaac Herzog, attended a, a reception here in Israel, given by the um, Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, celebrating the two-year anniversary of the Accords. Now, the event showcased how the Accords have brought together people from the region and helped create an atmosphere of peace, hope, and prosperity. The event was hosted by the UAE ambassador to Israel. It was attended by the uh, UAE Foreign Affairs International Cooperation Minister. Our president, Herzog, praised the UAE's leadership, calling the these people men of peace. Herzog made many points that were likely shared by those attending the meeting and which symbolize the large change that has happened in this region in the last several years. Our president, Herzog, said the signing of the Abraham Accords in September 2020, just two years ago, was a very moving occasion. It was moving because of the great potential that we wish to see in the Accords and because the vision we were praying for, for the state of Israel, and for all nations in the region. Witnessing the moment of historic importance, we hoped and prayed that this moment would provide us a path to the future of which we aspire, a future of partnership, prosperity, renewal, and peace. The, uh, by the way, our president, in his speech, also uh, mentioned other peace partners who are not from the middle, uh, not from uh, the Abraham Accords, such as Egypt and Jordan. And he said, on behalf of us all, I hope that we see more and more groundbreaking accords, including with our close neighbors, the Palestinians, and that the historic process gaining unimaginable momentum 
of Israel's integration into this region will continue layer upon layer. That's what he said. And by the way, the delegation from the UAE that came to Israel included the economic and tourism minister and, and other officials. So that's pretty much proof of the importance that they give to the Accords and proof that economic ties and sustainability issues were on the agenda. It just wasn't, say, we're making peace, but actually doing something about it. By the way, at the same time they had this meeting, the, uh, in parallel, the Israel Defense Forces hosted an international operational innovation conference for the first time in history. And this conference didn't get big headlines, included the participation of chiefs of staff and commanders from dozens of militaries from around the world. The conference constituted a significant platform for strengthening the operational cooperation between the participating countries while also providing an opportunity for intramilitary learning. There were approximately 3,000 commanders from the Israeli army who participated in a week-long conference and the, that's really important. And significantly, seven chiefs of staff came from Greece, Cyprus, Morocco, the Czech Republic, the Republic of Poland, and the United States, in addition to 24 military delegations from around the world. So attendees examined multidimensional live fire exercises and the simulation also emphasized innovation in the modern battlefield. All this happened with almost no headlines whatsoever. Now, several other things happened just around the same time. A recent free trade deal came as bilateral trade has exceeded $600 million dollars According to reports, an important summit that links Israel, the UAE, India, and the United States took place in July. This is an important trend. Knitting together countries such as Israel and the UAE as part of a wider partnership with the United States and India. So, so Israel has many partnerships now, didn't exist five years ago, that are linking Israel and the Gulf states, and they clearly showcase how much the Gulf states and Israel have to share with each other. Now this, I believe, is because we are in a shifting world order. So these countries have much in common. They also have similar partners in places like Greece and France, and ties to places like the United Kingdom. The, uh, the interesting, it, it makes sense that all these people work together. Together, Israel and the UAE and partners such as Bahrain, Morocco, Egypt, Jordan, the US and India become stronger through the Abraham Accords. And aside from military, there are business and innovation partnerships that continue to grow. In early September, a couple of weeks ago, the Abu Dhabi global market 
the leading international financial center there, and a Tel Aviv-based nonprofit called Startup Nation Central announced the signing of a memorandum of understanding to advance collaboration between the innovation and ecosystems of Israel and the UAE. So their UAE is innovating projects on climate change, transportation, infrastructure, healthcare, and space exploration, according to recent reports of the UAE's emphasis on new technologies. Now, much of this ties in with Israel's own successes. And this is linked to partnerships with Saudi Arabia. The, uh, by the way, there continues to be hope regarding potential Saudi-Israel ties. This is one of the things that doesn't exist. The, uh, a, a, an article appeared in a Bloomberg magazine, a business magazine, uh, that they noted that the kingdom of uh, kingdom of, of uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel are obviously no longer enemies. That's a big statement. So it's it said very interesting. It said they're no longer enemies, but they are not yet friends. The uh, normalization is taking place, not so fast, but it's taking place. Uh, by the way, in July, Saudi Arabia ended an airspace ban, and Israeli planes can now fly over Saudi Arabia to go to the Far East. That saves a couple hours of flying time. So there are still burdens and challenges for the countries involved in the Abraham Accords. The, uh, I, don't, I don't know the details, the business culture of Israel and uh, the UAE, for example, aren't the same. Uh, the, uh, there is tourism going both ways also. The, uh, so far, a lot of Israelis, including some people I know personally, have gone to the Gulf, to the UAE, but there have been very fewer visits to Israel from the Gulf. There are questions about incorporating Israel into more joint drills in the Red Sea, there are the combined maritime forces of 34 countries that partner with the U.S., all kinds of things that we don't know about because they sim they're not secret. They simply don't get the headlines. But despite all these challenges, the fruits of the Abraham Accords are really apparent, not uh, on the ground. So the world is different now, radically different, I might say, in a positive direction than it was just five years ago. And hopefully this trend will continue. Now I want to change the subject rather radically, but it also in a sense related to the sinkholes that I mentioned previously in my program, but in a much more positive way. Uh, first of all, in an ornate Byzantine floor mosaic showing a variety of colorful birds and other animals was discovered by chance in Gaza after a Palestinian farmer tried to plant new trees on his land. This farmer found a relic about six months ago while working in his olive grove in a refugee camp not far from the border with Israel. He was trying to figure out why some trees had not properly taken root so the farmer said he and his son began digging, 
Then the sun's axe hit something hard and unfamiliar in appearance. Then this uh, Arab, this Palestinian, in a refugee camp, searched on the internet, which is interesting, and he learned it was a mosaic belonging to the Byzantine era. And he says, I see it as a treasure, dearer than a treasure. It belongs to every Palestinian. Now, the Palestinian Authority has a Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities, and they said that the flooring included several mosaic panels depicting animals and other features of social life during the Byzantine area. So it, that's really interesting that a Gaza farmer, it's interesting, he said he searched on the internet, he had an internet, and they found something that goes back to the Byzantine period. Along the same lines, another interesting, there's a place called Pamachim. It's a beach. I have gone there many times myself. It's uh, south of uh, Tel Aviv. It's a beach on the uh, Mediterranean Sea, very popular. What happened was a team of Israeli archaeologists uh, discovered uh, a uh, stuff, a burial cave, actually, dating from the time of Pharaoh Ramses II. The, uh, they thought it possibly might be the Pharaoh that we know from the book of Exodus. And they found this uh, grave containing dozens of intact objects. It was discovered by chance uh, during work by the Nature and Parks Authority for the development of the park and after a tractor hit a rock, unexpectedly revealing the ceiling of a cave. That's one of the most interesting things about Israel, by the way. The I remember when I lived in Rehovot, somebody was building a house, and they hit something underneath. They called in the Antiquities Authority. Turned out it was something ancient and important, and so he could no longer use that part of his uh, parking lot. It became a national treasure. You had a park in the street. That's one of the interesting things about when you dig in Israel. The, uh, they identified the space, and now this one in Palmachim, and they descended into the cave, which seemed frozen in time. It was filled with dozens of whole pottery and bronze vessels, just as they were placed there during the burial cemetery of a pharaoh about 3,300 years ago. And apparently the vessels were offerings buried with the dead in the belief that they would be used by them in the next world. And the cave was carved in the shape of a square, and uh, in the center of the ceiling was a pillar. So according to the experts on the Bronze Age, this is a once-in-a-lifetime find. It's not every day that you see an Indiana Jones set, a cave with vessels on the floor that haven't been touched in 3,300 years. We're talking about the late Bronze Age. These are precisely the days of the King Ramses II, the one some identify with the story of the Exodus. Since the cave was found intact, it is said it can provide a complete picture of burial customs in the late Bronze Age. It's interesting. There were dozens of pottery vessels of various sizes and shapes. 
There were deep and shallow bowls, some of which painted in cookie pots, judge, and clay candles. See, uh, the uh, Israeli archaeologists think that the jugs and other vessels were made along the coast, where Lebanon is today in Syria, and uh, near the cities of Tyre and uh, Sidon. And they also could have come from Cyprus. So it turns out that the findings in the cave date to the 13th century BCE, the period during the 19th Egyptian dynasty and the rule of Ramses II, who placed an Egyptian administration over the, Palestine. There was free trade during that period across the region, and the findings prove that, that the ancient residents of Yavna along the Pamachim coast were integrated into the trade that was conducted along the Mediterranean shore. So it's really uh, the, the, uh, the uh, since the discovery of the cave and despite attempts to keep a media blackout, the word leaked out and some objects were stolen. That's very tragic. The uh, rumors about the discovery of the cave spread like through the scientific world like wildfire, and they received many requests from researchers to join the dig. Unfortunately, during the time before the cave was sealed, and despite guarding it, a number of archaeological items were stolen from the cave, and the matter is under investigations. So uh, what they're saying now is, in the immediate future, you're going to formulate the method of carrying out the required research and, and, and more importantly, perhaps, conservation of this unique site. So this is a, really a celebration for the entire archaeological world and the ancient history of the land of Israel. So it's really, it's, this is the only place, or one of the few places, put, put it that way, Israel, you can dig down and find history of thousands of years. It's really a something, and that's where I brought it to the attention of the listeners. The next item pretty much uh, coincides the time I'm uh, pre-recording this broadcast. While I'm pre-recording here on Monday, the, uh, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II is taking place in London. We're watching it for a few minutes on television. Uh, it's something very interesting. Since the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the traditional prayer book that the Jews in the United Kingdom have been reciting for hundreds of years has changed to include the name of King Charles III, as well as the Prince and Princess of Wales, William and Kate. He's in line for the uh, throne. In addition, in the coming months, United Synagogue will print a new version of its prayer book with the updated version of the prayer for the royal family. So, Jewish communities around the world have been accustomed to reciting a special prayer for the survival and peace of the heads of state in the countries in which they live. In the United Kingdom, the prayer blessed Queen Elizabeth, and in the United States, it's a blessing for the president. A source in the United Synagogue in England, which is the largest umbrella organization in the UK, it's considered a modern orthodoxy. It said that they're planning on printing a new version of the prayer book 
But now that the queen has died and there's a new king, they have decided to quickly edit the existing text to say the following. He who gives salvation to kings and dominion to princes, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, may he bless our sovereign lord, King Charles, our gracious queen, Consort Camilla, the prince and princess of Wales, and all the royal family. That's nice. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Millions of patients require surgery each year to remove cancerous tumors. The procedure is not without risk. An Israeli company called Ice Cure has been working on a technology based on cryoablation using liquid nitrogen to create freezing temperatures, effectively destroying tumors safely, quickly, and painlessly without the need for surgery. The system uses ultrasound imaging to guide a thin, hollow needle into the tumor, enabling the physician to maintain full control and can be performed in less than 30 minutes in a doctor's office. FDA approved for the treatment of benign breast tumors. The system is also indicated for the fields of general surgery, oncology, gynecology, and urology, helping to achieve the best possible patient outcomes. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this segment of the program with something I guess can be considered light. Um, the serious part is that uh, this week was uh, Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth II's funeral. And um, I think everybody I know, including myself, watched part of it. Uh, because it was really very dignified and unusual and probably for many people a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And just watching it was really an event. So uh, someone raised a question, did you ever get an invitation to an event and wonder who didn't make it or how close you're sitting to the host or who else is at your table? Now, hundreds of presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, emirs, and other world dignitaries came to Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And it's probably the most significant diplomatic event held by the United Kingdom for many, many years. The funeral uh, took place in Westminster Abbey, which can hold 2,000 people and it was filled to capacity. The leaks of documents from the United Kingdom Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office related to funeral arrangements, and it showed the government exhorting visiting leaders to limit their numbers of delegates and consider even flying commercial in a bid to reduce congestion at London's airports. But it's another requirement that's raised diplomatic anger in many parts. They said that a lot of dignitaries were asked to not bring their private cars and come to a rallying point near the Abbey and make their way en masse by bus. It's an idea so controversial, it seemed that the British Prime Minister's Office 
Official spokesmen insisted arrangements for leaders would vary depending on individual circumstances. Uh, I don't know what happened in the final analysis. I haven't seen the reviews. But we know there were exceptions granted to certain leaders, like U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, and he was able to go to the Abbey in his armored Cadillac. And uh, apparently a lot of diplomats were scrambling to get the same treatment. Uh, meanwhile, the question of who's invited or not, and who'll be going or not, brought its own number of issues. So far, I have a report from the day before the funeral, European royal figures came from Belgium, were invited from Belgium, Denmark, Morocco, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, and Sweden. Uh, heads of the Commonwealth countries, including the Canadian Prime Minister, Indian President, South African President, President of the European Commission, and uh, also Ukraine's First Lady. They're also going to have the uh, presidents of Austria, Finland, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, and Poland. And uh, the French president was also there. Japanese emperor and empress, and a break from standard protocol, uh, attended as a measure of the close ties he and his family enjoy with Elizabeth II. Also, there'll be Turkish president, the Emir of Qatar, uh, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, Palestinian Authority president, Jordan's King Abdullah, and the head of the Emirates. Also, Brazil's president, South Korean president, uh, the... Uh, Mexico will be represented, and the uh, there's the uh, there are others who said uh, uh, they haven't answered yet. Only six countries are not on the guest list in any capacity: Russia, as a result of its invasion of Ukraine, and Belarus for facilitating the attack by Russia, Afghanistan, which is now under Taliban rule. Myanmar, where the military took control in a coup last year, that used to be called Burma. Syria was not invited because of an ongoing civil war. And in Venezuela, uh, has no diplomatic relations with the United Kingdom. The, uh, a group of British parliamentarians heard of the in, uh, invitation extended to the president of China and called for it to be rescinded, describing it in a letter to the parliament head as wholly inappropriate. The uh, so that that's very interesting. How much you know? All each country's diplomats look around to see who's invited, and who's not, and who's not. Uh, the uh, so the Chinese vice president uh, confirmed he will attend. I don't know if he did. The, uh, there were a lot of people in the British uh, Parliament, members of Parliament, who wrote against inviting certain countries. The, uh, the heads of state or the representatives who've been invited to attend the state funeral are invited to attend the lying-in state in Westminster Hall. 
By the way, further controversy was uh, brought around by Saudi Crown Prince, who Saudi official authorities said will hold a phone call with the Prime Minister of uh, England to decide uh, whether or not uh, he would come. The, uh, they're, with, they're angry at him because uh, they ordered, he ordered the killing of a Saudi journalist, and uh, that's really not something very acceptable. And finally, there were one or two foreign dignitaries who were not invited because they're very controversial, like the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and uh, the uh, members of uh, Parliament said in a note that the Queen's passing is a truly sad occasion and certain people should not be allowed to stain her memory and use this time of mourning to seek legitimacy and normalization. So I don't know in the end who was not invited, but the British were extremely sensitive on a diplomatic level if they considered anyone to be invited would essentially be getting legitimacy. And there's some people they don't want to have legitimacy. So I haven't seen the results of, uh, of who was there. But uh, I mean, there's probably a big list, obviously. I'm not going to take the time to go look for it. But I just want to let the listeners know that even the Queen's funeral set off awkward diplomatic uh, um, reactions and uh, there a lot of people running around to make sure that their, the heads of state got invited, and others probably very upset that they didn't get invited, but uh, that's what happens on an occasion and on an occasion of this magnitude. It really was something to say. Now I want to go on to something much more serious, and again, as I've said in the past to the listeners, uh, my program only goes uh, on the air uh, once a week, so it's uh, it's hard to choose the items that will have lasting interest. Uh, but the one of the things that really is important right now, uh, with all the tension, particularly here in the Middle East and with Iran, one of the things that's really important is our relationship with the United States. And I came across a couple of articles about that, and I want to share what I learned. There are those who believed that Israeli-American relations could fall victim to the new arrangements between Washington and Iran because they're trying to revive the 2015 nuclear agreement. Apparently, the issue is not as superficial as some observers think. The Israeli-American strategic, uh, strategic alliance is not being tested as much as people think, according to some experts. The whole issue revolves around the cycle of mutual coordination to find the best alternatives that guarantee the interest of the Israel and the United States. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid recently said Israel has the full freedom to prevent any nuclear threat, that there are no American constraints on Israeli decision if Israel decides to prevent a nuclear threat from Iran. The uh, 
Israel cannot agree to accept restrictions imposed on the United, by the United States government, especially when it comes to its national security. Nor can the Biden administration risk trading the signing of a nuclear agreement with Iran for the abandonment of its commitment to Israel's security. But I don't know how true that is based upon seeing what the Americans did in Afghanistan. They pulled out in a very not nice way. So in discussing, discussing this issue, several facts uh, should be emphasized. First, it has to be recognized there is a high degree of coordination and institutional cooperation between Israel and the United States. Uh, I think previous I mentioned that they had a lot of military training together. This is not about democratic Republican governments in the states or who governs Israel, but it's about coordination between two countries that develops at a steady pace that can evolve or relatively slow down under the uh, influence of personal relations between heads of state. That happens. But there are fixed lines that will not be crossed downward regardless of the circumstances and reasons. Another point is it is not just a well-established strategic alliance between Israel and the United States, but also about the common interests. This is something that can easily be gleaned from the reality of the complex security environment here in the Middle East. All the facts apparently confirm, according to some experts, that strategic support to Israel is indispensable. The U.S. cannot maintain its influence in this region without Israeli support and cooperation. As for dealing with Iran, it can be said that it is difficult for Israel to launch a military strike against, against Iran unless it receives an explicit green light from the U.S. So the issue, the issue is not only the operational aspect of such an attack, but its military, political, and strategic consequences implication. Be taking into account Iran's ability to mobilize large regional militias in the Middle East is a very complicated issue. Now, this is even more complicated because Iran has all kinds of alliances and interests with countries like Russia and others. This could put Israel in a very turbulent security environment in the event of a military attack on Iran without coordination from the United States. Also, uh, it's a, it is in Washington's interest to coordinate with Israel if Israel decides to launch a military strike against Iran, whether to ensure that things are checked and not spiral out of control, or to ensure that the Israelis do not face a serious crisis with all that implies, whether for the popularity of American politicians or the interest of the United States and Middle East and internationally. This is an extremely complicated issue at the bottom of which is the need for Israel to be safe, to make sure that we don't come under, God forbid, nuclear attack from Iran. 
What's certain is the interest of the Israeli and American do overlap, especially in terms of Israeli's deterrent power and credibility. The uh, the uh, the there is certainty certain uh, certainty of the adversary I read of the existence of declared or undeclared American support for any possible Israeli attack and how it affects the calculations of the response because Israel is a, uh, a an ally, a close ally of the United States. And it's important that the Americans' awareness of the importance of Israeli pressure in an effort to prevent Iran from acquiring a military nuclear capability. We we have to understand that apparently Washington understands that pressure is a significant figure in the, in the uh, Iranian calculation. Now, the Tehran, Iran, may fear a U.S. military strike, but they don't worry about it anymore because uh, it's all complicated by the war in Ukraine. So, but strong Israeli pressure remains paramount in the calculations of U.S. strategists at this moment. Now, interestingly enough, something that didn't exist five years ago, and that is Israel now has free access to Iranian airspace through the Gulf, which has become an important operational constraint when calculating an effective Israeli airstrike against Iran's nuclear facilities. In other words, Israel can now fly over the Gulf states to reach Iran. So the, uh, it, there is also some uh, internal political conflict here in Israel. The Iranian nuclear threat is the subject of this internal conflict and all kind of political rivalry between Israeli parties and leaders. Politics in Israel is really messy, and hopefully they'll get together when it comes to face a uh, really an existential uh, threat from Iran. So they they don't uh, the the Lapid, our prime minister, so. Uh, he, he, the question is, for example, here in Israel, we're going to have an election coming up. And the question is, if Israel is going to attack uh, Iran, would it do so before the election? Believe it or not, this is the kind of things that the experts think the Israeli politicians take into account. So there are all kind of variables, particularly uh, Israel's strong influence on the American uh, uh, also, the American election. So you have an election coming up in Israel. You have an election coming up in the United States. And the question is, will it, how will and is, would an Israeli attack on Iran affect both elections? Also, Israel would very much prefer that the United States not return to any kind of uh, I, uh, nuclear deal uh, with Iran. So that, that's another, there's so many complicating factors in this, this uh, relationship. The bottom line is Israel must preserve the right of self-defense against any potential Iranian nuclear threat and keep the freedom of Israeli decision 
and the hands of Israel and not others, even if it's an American ally. There probably are a divergence in U.S.-Israeli views but the, uh, about the Iranian threat, but to Israel, is, it is an existential threat and one that we cannot allow to uh, happen. There's no two ways about it. The, uh, the, it, it, it's true also that Joe Biden's future in, in the last couple of years in office to, depends uh, to some extent on the negotiations with Iran. Right now, the, uh, there's a high inflation in the United States and their upcoming election, according to all the polls in the United States, the uh, president has very low popularity, uh, record-setting low popularity. So all these things will influence how the Americans will react, for example, to an Israeli attack. There's all kind of pressure on the president to sacrifice his agreement with Israel but there remains a red line that the U.S. cannot cross. Harming the security of Israel is something the United States simply cannot do. The, uh, the, what happens now with these marathon negotiations with Iran is important, but even if they negotiate an agreement that even Israel likes, there's a good possibility Iranians will break the agreement. They're not known for the, their honesty. So there could be a postponement of the signing, there could be a signing, there could be an announcement of a failure, no signing. We live in very complicated times, and what's happening in the Middle East is really an example of that complication. The first item on this segment of the program has to do with a historical event that took place in Germany last week. They commemorated the 70th anniversary of the signing of the indemnification agreement, making it possible for Holocaust survivors to receive a measure of justice. It is called the Luxembourg Agreements. It was a historic agreement, agreement and the president of the uh, claims conference was there, also the president of Germany, who said that the extermination of European Jews by the Nazis left a horrific chasm, not only in global Jewry, but in global humanity. These agreements laid the groundwork for compensation and restitution for those survivors who had lost everything and continued to serve as the foundation for the ongoing negotiations on behalf of the estimated 280,000 Holocaust survivors living around the world. Now, the history of this agreement, which doesn't get front page uh, headlines anymore, is the following. In September 1952, groundbreaking agreements on compensation payments for survivors of Nazi persecution during the World War II and to the State of Israel were concluded in the City Hall of Luxembourg. That this agreement, these agreements were negotiated and ultimately agreed between the, at that time, newly formed State of Israel 
the Federal Republic of Germany, which was the legal successor to the German Reich, and the other partner was the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, which simply known as the Claims Conference, and it's formed by 23 major global Jewish organizations to negotiate on behalf of the world's Holocaust survivors. These agreements created the basis for all subsequent compensation for Nazi persecution. So last week, the three signatory parties were represented at the, in, uh, in Berlin at the Jewish Museum. They, they, were, they spoke about the importance of the agreements and the special responsibility that Germany bears for its past. The Luxembourg agreements were fundamental and led to financial compensation in the amount of more than 80 billion euros it was been paid by Germany by the end of 2021. The payments are to survivors and the home care program, which are very important, and the, there is increasing importance of two things. The survivors of the Holocaust are aging. Many are infirm, have to be taken care of. And the other thing, which I don't think they spoke about 50 years ago, but now it's important, and that is Holocaust education. That's something they didn't speak about, and now it's important. The uh, state of Israel was represented there, and uh, it was really an important occasion. They're going to give more money for emergency humanitarian payments. Also, there are Ukrainian Holocaust survivors who are known, and they're going to be compensated one form or another. you got to keep in mind that the, the survivors of the Holocaust are all old, and they're dying, I forget what rate, but a lot are dying every year. Now, now for the first time, there's been an agreement on Holocaust education. And that's something new. Uh, and it's been negotiated with the German government. So you have Holocaust education, home care, and compensation for Holocaust survivors living around the world. And it's going to cost about $1.2 billion for the year 2023. So this, interestingly enough, didn't get big headlines even in Israel. But it's very important. The Germans accepted responsibility for what they did. They made an agreement 50 years ago, and they're extending the agreement further on. And uh, I think that's important, and it should have gotten a bigger headline. The next item that I want to refer to, in truth, is related to what I just said about, uh, about compensation uh, for... Uh, German atrocities during the Second World War, and the fact that the West German government uh, it takes responsibility, they have an airline called Lufthansa. Now, Lufthansa Group became the first airline in the world last week 
to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. They signed a, uh, an agreement uh, at a, in, in Washington last week at an event that was uh, hosted by uh, Lufthansa. There, uh, so the, uh, the group of executive for, uh, for Lufthansa said, and I quote, I speak with conviction when I say there's no room for anti-Semitism and racism of any kind in society. Fundamentals of standing against anti-Semitism is understanding what it is and how it manifests, both in overt forms and through unconscious bias. So the, this definition, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, known by its initials IHRA, uh, is very distinct. It's been adopted by a lot of countries. The working definition of anti-Semitism, IHRA, is really a non-legally binding statement on what anti-Semitism is. It was adopted uh, with representatives in 31 countries several, about a year ago. The statement reads, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and on their property toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. So there are all kinds of examples of, uh, of anti-Semitism that are defined. And uh, in in incidentally, Lufthansa, the German airline, announced it was creating a senior management role dedicated to preventing discrimination and anti-Semitism. Now that's very interesting. This was two months after it brought a large group of Orthodox Jewish passengers from, from boarding a flight, but an independent investigation commissioned by the airline said there was no evidence of institutional anti-Semitism behind the incident. So apparently something happened. I don't know what it was. I guess some uh, some uh, uh, Hasidic Jews, uh, I don't know what they did, but they, uh, the airline uh, prevented them from boarding a flight. So that's, a, a, that's an incident. It could really have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Could have to do with their behavior, heaven knows what. At any rate, Lufthansa became the first airline to adopt this IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And this is in the same time that the, um, the compensation for uh, victims of the Holocaust is being extended by the uh, German government. A lot of interesting things happened last week. The next item on a totally different subject, but I, uh, I think it uh, deserves attention. Uh, there's a small article in the back of several newspapers here in Israel that said that you, Yeshiva University in New York cannot ban an LGBT student club 
after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to block a judge's ruling ordering the school to officially recognize the group. In a 5-4 decision, the justices declined to put on hold a state court ruling that a city anti-discrimination law required it to recognize what's called the Yeshiva University Pride Alliance. They have to recognize it as a student club at the school. Meanwhile, Yeshiva University is pursuing an appeal in lower courts. The decision by the Supreme Court essentially directed the case back to the state court system. The, uh, I don't want to go into the details of what the Supreme Court uh, said, but the, uh, one of the things that the decision said is the First Amendment guarantees the right to the free exercise of religion. And if that provision means anything, it provides prohibits a state from enforcing its own preferred interpretation of Holy Scripture. Yet that is exactly what New York has done in this case, and disappointing that a majority of the court refuses to provide release. So it's interesting. This whole dispute hinges in part on whether Yeshiva University is a religious corporation and therefore exempt from New York City human rights law, be the New York City human rights law bans discrimination by a place uh, of public accommodation. So the question is, what is the status of Yeshiva University? The Yeshiva University made a statement to the court, and they said, and I quote, as a deeply religious Jewish university, Yeshiva University cannot comply with the order because doing so would violate its sincere religious beliefs about how to form its undergraduate students in Torah values. So uh, the, uh, there, there was a dissent from the Supreme Court that said the First Amendment guarantees the right to free exercise of religion. And if that provision means anything, it prohibits a state from enforcing its own preferred interpretation of Holy Scripture. But that is exactly what New York has done in this case. And it's disappointing that a majority of the court refuses to do, provide relief. The, the uh, Yeshiva University is based in Manhattan. It has about 6,000 students enrolled in undergraduate and graduate programs. Among the school's values, according to its website, are believing the infinite worth of each and every human being and the responsibility to reach out to others in compassion. So the uh, university wanted to disallow an LGBT student club and the uh, courts are not backing the universities. And this is going to continue on. I'll, I'll let the, um, I'll inform the readers as this thing develops. Uh, the, according to the Bible, homosexuality is something that's prohibited. And there are, with, with all due respect to people who uh, have same-sex preference, uh, the question is whether a... Um, University under 
called Yeshua University under Orthodox auspices can allow a club consisting of members who violate what they consider the school considers to be a religious law. That's the bottom line. Now we'll see. I have to see how it works out. As as I find the as it develops, I'll keep the readers. I'm sorry, the listeners informed. Interestingly enough, the next topic uh, I spoke before about uh, Lufthansa making a decision to adopt the official definition of anti-Semitism, and uh, after I did that portion of the program, I took a break, and I saw a, a newspaper article that uh, essentially had more information about. And I want to share it with the listeners. What happened was a large group of Orthodox Jewish passengers were barred from boarding a flight back in May from Frankfurt to Budapest because some of them had not worn masks and uh, and they gathered in the aisles, which is against the rules on the flight. I, I guess they were praying. What happened was the incident, uh, incident around, uh, outraged Jews in the United States and Europe some of whom alleged that the crew had discriminated against all visibly Jewish passengers, even those who would comply with the rules. Uh, an uh, independent investigation was commissioned by the airline, said there was no evidence of institutional anti-Semitism behind the incident. And now Lufthansa has decided to adopt the definition of anti-Semitism it's an important milestone for the airline, and it's an important milestone in the global battle against anti-Semitism. So uh, it's interesting. Lufthansa, Lufthansa could have decided to simply apologize for that incident, but Lufthansa decided to do much more. It appointed an anti-Semitism manager, as I mentioned before, within the company's executive leadership, as, and they adopted the definition, and they signed an agreement with the American Jewish Committee to train employees to, to identify and respond to anti-Semitism. I think that a decision like Lufthansa's to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is an important now, especially at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise across the globe particularly in the United States. According to the Anti-Defamation League, there were 2,717 anti-Semitic uh, anti incidents in 2021, which was an increase of 34% over 2020, and it's the highest on record since the New York-based civil rights group started tracking such cases back in 1979. The uh, That's very nice. Getting the definition of anti-Semitism adopted by non-governmental organizations like an airline is important for stopping the wave of hate from spreading. So Lufthansa took an important step in, in the battle, and it's interesting to see whether airlines will follow suit. Since we're talking about Germany and we're talking about anti-Semitism, I'd say something else. Germany is Israel's most important economic partner in the European Union. There is bilateral trade worth $6.6 .6 billion. At the same time, 
Concerns have been raised about Germany's rising anti-Semitism and support for NGOs in Israel, which work to undermine Israeli policies toward the Palestinians. So I think we can conclude that the debate over the nature of the Jewish state's relationship with Germany will never end. Both sides of the debate take sensible positions and its positions are full of emotion. Many argue that today's Germany isn't the same as the Germany of the Holocaust. Germans themselves have changed and are deeply ashamed of their crimes. They argue that the time has come to forgive Germany for its crimes and build a strong relationship with Germany as an ally. The, uh, the argument that Germany shouldn't be forgiven doesn't believe the Jewish state has the right to forgive Germany for the murder of six million Jews. It's a very interesting argument. So I think as we approach judgment days of Rosh Hashanah, forgiveness is at the forefront of our minds. The, uh, we need to gain the forgiveness of our friends and beg from God. We also ask ourselves are any crimes too heinous to forgive. So uh, giving forgiveness is a Jewish trait we are commanded to master. Maybe the Jewish state shouldn't offer forgiveness for a crime as heinous as the Holocaust. That's a toughie. I don't know. I just uh, want to share my thoughts with the listeners. I don't know. As I said a moment ago, Germany is Israel's most important economic partner, and that also means something. So, uh, Forgiveness, I don't know, that's in everybody's heart. And I remember when uh, when Israel first accepted compensation with Germany, there was a terrific political argument that really, in a sense, has never ended. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Jay Shapiro. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. 
I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.